Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Coming of Age was recorded in 2017. Please enjoy Peggy Frew, Alice Pung and Holly Throsby discussing the power of a young narrator with Magdalena Ball. So I'll just begin by introducing um, Peggy Frew's debut novel, House of Sticks, won the 2010 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. Her story, Home Visit, won the Age Short Story Competition. She's been published in New Australian Stories 2, Kill Your Darlings, The Big Issue, and Mianjin. Peggy's also a member of the critically acclaimed and award-winning Melbourne band, Art of Fighting. Her latest novel is Hope Farm, which features a 13-year-old protagonist named Silver. Alice Pung's first book, Unpolished Gem, won the Australian Book Industry's Newcomer of the Year Award and was shortlisted in the Victorian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. It was published in the UK and USA in separate editions and has been translated into several languages, including Italian, German, and Indonesian. And Alice's next book, Her Father's Daughter, won the Western Australia Premier's Award for Nonfiction and was shortlisted for the Victorian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and the Queensland Literary Awards. Her latest book, Lorinda, has been shortlisted for numerous awards in 2015, and she's also been shortlisted as the Sydney Morning Herald's Young Novelist of the Year. And Holly Throsby has released five solo albums, as well as a collection of original children's songs and an album as part of the band Seeker, Lover, and Keeper with Sarah Blasco and Sally Seitman. Seltman, and has been nominated for four ARIA Awards. Her debut novel, Goodwood, was published by Allen and Unwin in October 2016 and was shortlisted for an Indie Book Award in the debut fiction category. So welcome Peggy, Alice, and Holly, and to all of you, thank you. So let's begin with the notion of a young narrator. Um, yours are all different ages. Silver's just 13, Lucy's 15, and Jean is 17, but they're all on the cusp of transition. Um, what is it about a young protagonist that's so powerful? So what draws you to working with a teen? And I might just start with Alice. Um, I, I think the author John Marsden said that when you're a teenager or a young adult, you have the most number of firsts happen in your life, you know, or most number of firsts that you're fully conscious of and you can analyze. So maybe your first experience of bullying, your first um, love, your first kiss, and all these first experiences leave a deep impression because they've happened for the first time. And, you know, subsequently, the, the more they happen, the, the more it plateaus and it peters out, but the first time has the most impact on a young adult, and that's why this period of time is so fascinating to me. Mm. I've never thought about it that way, but it's true, isn't it? Um, I didn't make an intentional decision to write about adolescence for that reason, but now looking at it from that angle, I can see that it was, I think I wanted to look at the time in someone's life where you're separating from your parents or in the case of Silver, who's the main character in my book, Hope Farm, Silver is reaching a point where she's able to see her mother in a new light. Uh, and so I suppose that's a first as well. She's developing a, an identity that's separate from her mother. So, but I didn't set out to write about adolescence. I think when I first started writing Hope Farm, Silver was actually much younger. Um, she was maybe seven and I probably wrote about half of the first draft and then realised that that just wasn't working. Um, uh, she needed to have a lot more of a sense of herself as a separate being from her mother. Mm. So then she became a teenager. Yes, yeah, so, and Holly, your narrator is quite a lot older. Uh, yes, yeah, she's 17. Jean is 17 when the events in Goodwood take place. Um, I love books that are narrated by young narrators or animals or anyone who's naive in some way and not part of the adult world. Um, I'm not, I wasn't really sure why I liked books that were, had these kinds of narrators, but I think it's because it allows us as adults to read 
through the younger eyes and understand more than our narrator understands. And there's something nice about that, watching them unfold and seeing how the world around them is unfolding with more understanding than they have. Um, I think it allowed me to explore really dark areas of humanity, whether that's addiction or violence or mental health issues um, or death. Uh, it allowed me to use humour because of the way a young person can see this and not be weighed down by the kind of baggage of adult experience. I felt that Jean's viewpoint, which her youth was very much a part of, allowed me to use kind of naivety and humour to explore dark themes while not creating necessarily a very dark book, um, which is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Is there something about the teen years as well that kind of sticks with us, that provides good material? I mean, I feel like in all of your books, one of the things that really struck me, and probably irritates you as well, is the verisimilitude. Like, there is a quality about all three of your books that feels almost like memoir. I know they're not, and I know, but I also know that people do tend to immediately think, I wonder if this is based on. <laughs> um, and, and so I think maybe there is some sense that, you know, we all, having gone through those teen years, have held on to this kind of sense of wonder at the change in our body and the awkwardness and the pain. Do you, do you feel like that's the case? Just jump in. Uh, that's funny, because I just asked Alice if Lorinda was <laughs> based on her own experience just before. Um, does anyone else want to answer this? Oh, I think, um, I mean, I set my book in the early 90s because I did know what it was like to be a teenager in the early 90s and I felt like I could give it that kind of authenticity. Um, and, I mean, I guess it's like what Alice was saying, that this is a time, this sort of liminal period between childhood and adulthood that does make a, such a strong impression. So I feel like as adults we can evoke that with a genuine nostalgia, um, which can be affecting for readers. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that sometimes you need to also be looking back uh, on, that, on that time. Um, I, in, in some of my earlier drafts with Hope Farm, I tried to really keep the action very tight, um, so it was really only happening the, the point of view that you're getting is Silver's point of view as a 13-year-old. And I very quickly realised that that perspective was too narrow and that what I really actually needed was to be writing from the point of view of an older woman looking back on her adolescence. Mm -hmm. So I guess perhaps that might explain that feeling that you're talking about of the lingering, the, the lingering of those experiences and how they form who you become yes. later. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt that with all of your books, I felt that sense of there being, um, I, I guess, a kind of third person involved who was older and wiser and looking back. That sense that was, you know, in Lorinda as well. That that sense that there was there was a, another voice, another narrative voice. Um, yeah, I, I think there is always a third person looking back. With Lorinda, though, I wanted to put the reader in the immediacy of the experience because as a teenager, things hit you pretty hard and um, we often forget, as adults, the overwhelming sense of uh, powerlessness a teenager feels which causes them to act out in you know, different ways. But what, what's so fascinating for me is the, the teenager's mind um, so when I was at school, I remember studying King Lear, I remember studying, you know, brutal Shakespearean works like Macbeth. And then um, I was at a private school where 16-year-old girls weren't allowed to cross the roads by themselves. And it's this dichotomy, mm. this, you know, absolute cultivation of this adult brain and, you know, infantilization of this um, young woman's self that really... Uh, really got some certain girls in our school acting up, you know, acting out, um, being real pains, being real, you know, when, when you watch um, 
What's that Chris Lilly show, Jamae, <laughs> private school girl? <laughs> you really got the sense of that, and it was a sense of frustration that they were burgeoning adults, but they weren't taken seriously as adults in certain institutions. And what I also remember about that time was um, the absolute bullying that we did not towards each other, because that happened, that's, that's normal course of adolescence in a lot of schools, but towards teachers. So a 14 or 15 or 16 year old girl is quite vulnerable by herself and quite sweet and well-mannered and polite. When you get them en masse, when you get 21 of them in a classroom and your 23-year-old teacher or your, you know, a 60-year-old male teacher on the verge of retirement, um, they can be really brutal. And a lot of Lorinda, when I was writing it, my editor put little flags when he started editing it, and he said, can you think of a better example? This one is too far-fetched. And all of the examples were from real life. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think another thing about, and, and I, you know, I, I take your point too about these, the, the dichotomy between feeling like, and, and all of your characters go through this, I think, even, even at 13, the sense that, you know, I, I'm an agent, I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm moving in an adult world, I'm having adult emotions, my, you know, waking sexuality, um, you, you know, there's a lot of things happening that feel very adult. And at the same time, there's a lot of things happening that kind of infantize, particularly young girls, I think, that, that you really struggle with that mix. Well, Peggy's main mm. character actually sees a lot of adult experiences which mm. um, probably weren't appropriate for, for a young girl, so that speeded up things for her, I think. Yes, and I think in Goodwood too, I mean, there's a, there is the catalyst of the, you know, the missing people, which I think really throws what might have been, I guess, a you know, fairly idyllic childhood into some, you know, the adult world fast. Yeah, I think as I was writing Goodwood and writing this story through Jean, because Goodwood is ostensibly about two people who go missing from a small town. Um, but as I was writing it, I was interested in how it would end, because I wasn't sure how it was going to end. Um, and as the ending kind of unfolded to me as I wrote it, um, the ending for Jean also unfolded in terms of where I left her in the book and where I left her in, this, in her life. Um, and somebody said to me uh, that where a book ends is what a book is really about. And I'd never really thought about this and I'd already finished my first and second draft and I knew where my book ended. And I think the nice thing about a naive narrator is that Jean is telling a story um, that she thinks is very interesting. It was very interesting to her, it was very interesting to her town. But as readers, I think, hopefully, readers are interested in Jean, but she doesn't kind of know that, which I think is an, a nice thing about her. She's, she's quite enigmatic, really, um, and she doesn't feel that this is her story, but I think it is in a lot of ways, and I think that's a kind of something that teenagers you know, are so invested in the outside world and everything that's happening to them and everything that's influencing them. It takes a long time to realise who the self, the self is. Mm. And that's kind of part of adulthood is to work out what is it that we really want, what is it that we really want to do with ourselves and make us happy, you know, separate to external forces and influence. Um, the teenage years are completely swallowed in influence. Um, so I was kind of interesting, interested to posit Jean in a position where she was about to discover all of these things about herself, um, and who knows what might happen <laughs> in the sequel. <laughs> it's it's funny, isn't it? I was just thinking about what you were saying, Holly, about how Jean doesn't think it's her story, yet it is, and we are interested in Jean. And in a way, Jean doesn't know how interesting she is. But it's possible that later on in her life, she will look back and realise how interesting she was, how powerful she was mm. as well, mm. perhaps, um, which is one of the most kind of fascinating and tragic things I think about adolescence and probably how we all feel about our own adolescence that it's, well, okay, I won't speak for everyone, speaking for myself, I, um, you know, the moment I, it was as if I spent pretty much from the age of 13 until well into my 20s constantly trying to scrub out the most recent version of myself because I was so ashamed of 
who I was as I was trying to figure out who I was. Um, and I know other people have had this experience. Uh, and, and yet, later on, you're able to look back and see all of the, the wonderful things about who, who you were as a teenager. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, that wasn't really about the books. No, <laughs> and I think it is about the books because I think one of, again, another thing that all of your books have in common is this sense of the protagonist feeling othered, you know, not feeling part of whatever the story, the, the main story, which they perceive as being the, the majority story, if you like. They see themselves as a minority, as being outside of the norms. And, and coming, I guess, to accept that otherness is almost this subtle underlying story that, that all of your work is about and that has it in common. Mm. Yeah, that's true. When I remember growing up as a teenager and I had a few friends um, who we didn't see many Asian Australians on television, so they dyed their hair blonde and they put in blue eye contacts because they, they really didn't want to be Asian. They, they would have peeled off their skin if they could. Um, but the sad reality was they weren't accepted as white Australian girls. They were clearly Asian. You can't put on blue eye contacts and dye your hair yellow. But they did that. And then I thought, oh, maybe it was just my generation growing up in the 80s and 90s. And then I see my young cousins doing the same. So I thought, oh, that, that's quite sad. But when I write, started writing Lorinda, I, I wasn't um, interested in ethnicity or, or race. I was more interested in this idea of class because I grew up with a very, um, you know, common experience to my friends, but one that's kind of a locked away world where I grew up with a family of outworkers and my aunties were outworkers, my mum was an outworker. And some of the things that happened was there was um, one of my little baby cousins one day he got quite sick and his snot was coming out of his nose and it was bright blue. And my auntie really panicked and said, well, has he ingested poison or something? But what had actually happened was she had been sewing jeans all week and all the fibers of the dyes of the jeans had um, seeped into where he was sitting in a cardboard box in the garage because that was his little playpen. And he, he was just a baby then and got into his lungs. So that, that's what made him quite sick. Um, but I wanted to portray a realistic um, experience of outworking. It's, it's not all tragedy because I also remember my friend David, when he was 10 years old, he bragged at school, he said, oh, I'm going to get 10 bucks by the end of the week, which was like 50 bucks in these days. And we said, how are you going to do that? And he said, I get paid 10 cents for every collar I iron. So he ironed the collars that went into shirts for Sports Girl and Country Road. And so there was this 10-year-old boy just furiously ironing collars. And we were all his friend that week. We're like, David's going to get 10 bucks and he's going to buy out the whole canteen. And you know what happened? When that day came, we're all hanging around the fence. And, you know, it was spitting with rain, but we didn't care. We're waiting for him. And he walks past, and he just gives us a look and doesn't say anything. And we said, where, where's your 10 bucks then? Where is it? Where is it? And he just wouldn't say anything. And we realized he was the only dry person in the schoolyard because his Chinese-Cambodian mum had made him buy a frigging umbrella with that 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and that's clearly where some of the verisimilitude of your novel comes from. <laughs> I mean, that the lamb story is right there, isn't it? With oh, the yeah, blue, that's true, blue yeah. Snot, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So, I mean, I, also, I think this notion of the power dynamics, um, not just between youth and adult, but that is, I think that's very important. Um, I see it in my own teens, you know, that this desperation to navigate that feeling of powerlessness that you feel when you're teenage, but also the power dynamics from a class point of view. And I think that's, again, clear in all of these narrators that they're struggling with um, how class is determined. And, and that's not even just within their, their high schools or the bullying dynamics that create those, but also from the, the point of view of the teachers and the staff um, and the other people around them. They seem to perpetuate those, those power relationships. Mm. And who's on the inner and who's on the outer, as with, you know, with hippies, for example, and how the hippies are treated, the hippies, you know, the people in, um, in Hope Farm are treated as well. Yeah. So um, can we talk a little bit about um, the settings of your book? Because they're all really strong settings. I mean, I, I know you want to 
resist this, Holly, but I was very much thinking of um, a Lynchian landscape. <laughs> a Lynchian? Lynchian, yes. As in David? As in David, right. yes, yes. Um, um, with There's nothing like finding an ear in a, you know, a suburban lawn to unsettle a whole community. I've, that blue velvet stuck with me, but I wasn't thinking of David Lynch. I was actually thinking more of um, not Twin Peaks, but Northern Exposure, yeah. which was a TV show in the 90s. I don't know if anyone watched it. I loved it. It was really formative to my teenage brain. Um, a small community filled with kind of really eccentric people. I mean, in the show, it's, it verges on ridiculous a lot, but in a really nice way, it's almost magical realism. Um, and so I had a town like that kind of in mind with Goodwood, but also very much an Australian town. Uh, Goodwood is based on an amalgamation of South Coast and Southern Highlands towns, um, but with a nod to the Hunter region, because I do spend time here, I have family. So the, the Gather River in Goodwood is a pun on the Hunter River, and the Wicko, where everyone drinks, is the Wicko. <laughs> um, where my, my partner's dad plays in a band. Uh, but it's such an Australian pub, I just had my mind in that beer garden when I was writing Goodwood. Um, but yeah, I think that for me, having a small town setting did mirror the kind of idea of having a young narrator. Um, there's something naive about small towns compared to big cities in literature and in life, really. I mean, it's an interesting way to view kind of group psychology in a more microcosmic way, which I really enjoyed. I mean, it's similar to Peggy, you know, in Hope Farm, we have a very kind of closed world. Um, and I was interested in, in, in investigating the relationship dynamics within this sort of space with very knowable kind of feel landscape. These microcosms. Yeah. I mean, I guess what makes it not like Twin Peaks. I mean, I did immediately think of that, and it's probably only because I watched it late. Um, but the, I guess what makes it more, um, I guess, more warm is that people do seem to have a very high tolerance of this, you know, of difference and acceptance. Yeah, I think everyone in small towns has a higher tolerance for oddity, and I think that oddity is allowed to flourish a lot more. Um, I think when you're weird in a big city, you're just weird. Um, whether when you're kind of weird in a smaller town, you're a character, uh, you're eccentric, you're you're part of the landscape in a kind of hilarious way. And there are several of those people in Goodwood, but I also didn't want them to be caricatures in any way. Like, I as soon as I started writing this book, the characters became so real so quickly to me that um, I felt probably a little bit too strongly for them. Jean is quite an empathic narrator, but I got very upset about some things that happened. But even though I knew they were gonna happen, I still felt really sad about it and spent some time kind of jolling myself about what I'd done. <laughs> <laughs> did, did your publisher say, make it worse for them? Make it a little bit worse? Um, no, I, that would have been cruel. But you know, I feel like everyone, it's, there's some people that, it's, that life has been very hard on in Goodwood and that have experienced a lot of personal trauma and are carrying that trauma away around with them. But I guess it's also about what you do with trauma, whether you let it, you know, submerge you and, or whether you let it kind of buoy you and allow you to feel empathy for others and to let other people in. Um, so there's a kind of, it's interesting to explore the way people would deal with that in this book and how that helps them or really, um, I can't think of another word, doesn't help them. <laughs> Obstructs them. <laughs> Sorry, it's early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, same with the rural Victorian landscape of Hope Farm. I mean, I, I see a lot of microcosms playing out and, and the same with Lorinda. So you've got, you know, you've got the farm itself and the people who live on the farm versus the town and the school and so forth. Mm. Yeah. I, whenever, with all my writing, I never have a plan and I, and I never, I always realise later what, why I did things. And what I figured out after I'd finished Hope Farm was I knew I wanted to write about, I, w I knew I wanted to write something set in the mid 80s in Australia that was about the kind of wash up 
of the hippie dream that, that, that flourished in the 70s. And I wanted to see, I think, what, in what ways that had failed people, that particular subculture. Uh, and I, th I think looking at the end of it was showed how it had failed because these were people that were still clinging on to ideas that hadn't really sort of remained relevant for, for a lot of other people. Uh, and, and I, but I, I think why I wanted to write about that, what I eventually figured out was that what I really wanted to write about was a relationship between a parent and child mm. that's pushed beyond, you know, that's pushed to its absolute breaking point. And the, the hippie context was the perfect context because this was an environment where there were not normal rules for relationships, so a relationship could really go anywhere between a, a, a mother and a daughter. Uh, yes, but just to go back to the setting, sometimes I think what you write, or and this might apply to music as well, Holly, um, is often a reaction to what you just finished working on. And my first novel, House of Sticks, was set in a in a suburban setting in a big city in Melbourne. Not a big city by world standards, but <laughs> uh, and it in tone it was very confined and very claustrophobic. And by the time I finished that book, I just wanted to bust out and I wanted to write something that felt really open and and I wanted to write something beautiful and that and the setting I, I got a couple of weeks writing um, in actually not in Gippsland which is where Hope Farm is set but somewhere else in rural Victoria during the about this time of year early autumn and everything was very crisp and you got these bright blustery days where the sun would be out but the wind's blowing and it's this kind of glittering landscape uh, and I I wrote the first three chapters of Hope Farm there uh, and so that the, the setting was quite a conscious reaction to the feeling of the book before. I wanted to write a book that had this beautiful feeling of, of nature. I wanted to bring, write about something that was set in nature and then the characters, you know, and the, the hippie context all just sort of rose up out of my subconscious as a way of exploring, I suppose, my personal obsessions with mother-daughter relationships. <laughs> and look, we'll, we'll definitely get back to that because I think that's also another common theme. But um, I, I, I feel like there's almost a visceral response, certainly that Silver has when she's out in the woods, that almost takes her away from the drama of her, her life, that something's awakening. And I feel that with all your books, that something kind of gets woken up as the character starts to see themselves in the context of their, their world. That, that's very physical mm. and quite beautiful in that sense too. Quite sensual, I think is the word. Mm. So um, Alice, talk to me a little bit about that. You've got your real comparison between the Stanley suburbs and Lorinda, the sort of school world, which is almost its own little community and, and neighborhood, isn't it? It is, um, and what was so interesting is when the book came out, um, people highlighted that contrast subconsciously. So um, I don't have a copy of my book with me, but the cover of Lorinda I really like. It's bright yellow and it's got a school kilt on it. It's got a blue kilt with checkers on it. And every interview, almost every interview, 99% of interviews uh, that I did for the book on radio, on print, you know, um, the interviewer would inevitably ask me, so what school is this based on? Come on, is, is it based on Lauriston College? Is it based on Methodist Ladies College? Because Melbourne is, is quite big on its private schools. They really wanted to know, um, and they were reading a lot into that cover. And I thought, well, 50% of Melbourne private schools have that kilt, you know, blue <laughs> with, with stripes on it. But that was so fascinating because no interview did anyone ask me about this suburb of Stanley 
So the school in Lorinda is completely made up, but the suburb of Stanley is entirely real. All I did was change its name from Braybrook to Stanley. I grew up in a suburb called Braybrook, which is next to Sunshine, and Sunshine is the heart of Australian industrial relations, you know, heartland. It's the heartbeat. Um, my other job is as a lawyer, so um, this is where a decision called the Harvester decision came from. There was a factory there called the Sunshine Harvester Works, and um, it was the first time in Australia in 1901 that they determined that a worker should be entitled to a minimum wage that would support himself, his wife, and two or three kids. And this was the first time in the world. So it was a very proud working class neighborhood, Braybrook and Sunshine. Uh, when I was growing up there in the 1980s, though, the recession had hit. So you had two groups of people. You had the Bogans, and you all know what a Bogan is. But directly beneath the Bogans, the people who moved into the empty houses where the poor um, men and women who got laid off from the jobs in the carpet factories went to places like you know, Geelong to work in the car factories there. So the new people who moved in were mostly Southeast Asian immigrants who survived the Vietnam War or the Cambodian genocide like my parents. So you had the Bogans, but we were notch below the Bogans, we were the Bogasians, like the Bogan Asians. <laughs> and the difference was if you were Bogan, you shopped at Target. If you were Bogasian, you shopped at that little tro trolley in Target called the Shop Soil Trolley, where things were missing, you know, had a pack of socks that was missing one pair of socks, or you had a, a little um, transformer toy that was missing the head. <laughs> and so that was the difference. Even among the poorest, and this is so relevant when you turn on the news and you, you see American politics, Australian politics, even among the poorest people in Australia, there's a hierarchy. And that was what I wanted to highlight in Lorinda. And sadly enough, this is what I realised about the Melbourne establishment. They weren't interested in the little suburb of Braybrook. They were more interested in which private school I was maligning in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that goes back again to the, you know, the verisimilitude about um, having this young narrator. Everybody's like, oh, that was, you know, that was my life and that's my school. And, you know, um, it's a, I think it's almost True. instinctual reaction. <laughs> um, so let's talk about parents. <laughs> and particularly, you know, it's almost impossible. I mean, I think Goodwood probably has the least complex parental relationships going on, at least within the protagonist's life. There are others. But um, it's almost inevitable with a teenage character that you have parental issues. So we might start with Hope Farm because that's the you know <laughs> that's, that's the, the lowest hanging fruit one. here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the obvious one, the mother daughter, and and the dynamics I felt too with mother daughter. Almost the roles were interchangeable. Yeah. So as I said before, it, the the sort of beginning of Hope Farm for me was a reaction to the book I'd written before. And my first book, House of Sticks, was about motherhood. The main character is a mother with very young children and it's about basically a crisis of, of early parenthood and loss of identity, you know, who am I now that all I do is clean up after other people, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I thought, I'm not going to write a book about a mother. I'm not going to write a book about a mother. So I'm going to write this book. I'm going to set it in the country. And then the characters arrived in my brain. And lo and behold, it was a mother and a daughter. <laughs> but I thought, I'm going to write it from the point of view of the daughter. So it's not going to be about mother being a mother. Um, and so, so Silver's 13. She's arrived at Hope Farm, which is this sort of failed hippie commune in rural Victoria, in Gippsland, with, with this sort of little, maybe a dozen left behind hippies living there, kind of clinging to their old and broken dreams. And not really, it's not really functioning as a commune, it's more like a share house, except it's on a rural property. Uh, and Silver's mother, Ishtar, is the only family Silver's ever known. She doesn't She's lived in hippie communes all her life and she doesn't know who her father is. She doesn't know about any, any other family who her grandparents might be or anything because her mother's never told her and her mother is the kind of person that you can't ask those questions of. Uh, so I think 
where these characters, why these characters arrived in my head and why I felt compelled to write about them did come from my own experience of both having a mother and of being a mother. Um, and I did end up writing from both points of view. So the main thread of the narrative is from Silver's point of view, the daughter, but then there are also sections that are from Ishtar, the mother's point of view. And I think what I ended up realising I was writing about was about the difference between love in a relationship and having the skills to express that love in a relationship. Uh, and I think that was really relevant to my own life, to figuring out stuff, I think, as often happens with people when you have your own children and they sort of reach a certain age, usually around 10, eight, eight nine, 10, uh, you start to think about how you were parented, or it might happen earlier, in my case it was around that stage, and then you start to think about your own parents and you get this whole new sort of layer of perspective because now you're comparing yourself no longer with them, uh, you're no longer seeing yourself as their child, you're sort of comparing yourself as a parent with the sort of parent that your parent was. Um, so, oh, I've kind of lost the thread of what, what was I? <laughs> Just the mother-daughter mother dynamic. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, I wanted to look at what happens when there's a relationship that is has always existed under such conditions that, and, and I won't go into Ishtar's backstory, but she's a very immature character, you know, and she she's basically sort of on an emotional sort of maturity level frozen at about the age of 17, I think. Uh, and what happens when someone is a parent in that, when they're in that position and how it doesn't mean that she doesn't love her daughter and what ends up happening, what, what Silver ends up doing and the decisions she ends up making which do have devastating consequences for the relationship with her mother and for other people as well, doesn't mean that Silver doesn't love her mother. There's a, an incredible strength of love between those two characters but they, Ishtar in particular, is completely lacking in the skills to express her feelings and so that was, I think, what I wanted to explore. And, and of course, Ishtar and her mother as well. That's right, yes. Yeah, which is a little bit yeah. reverberation. Um, in, in Goodwood, um, it's not so much mother-daughter, is it? There's a, there's a little subtle, it's very subtly handled, I must say, but um, it's a bit of a missing father thing. <laughs> um, yes, there is. And it is subtle, and I was careful with that uh, because Jean's father is not around and he's just not around and it's it never is actually explained um the complexity of that relationship is not explained but i also think that's important because jean i don't think has any has any conception of the impact this has had on her because she just is too young she doesn't understand that yet and I wanted her mother to be very good. I wanted her to have a really lovely, uncomplicated relationship with her mother, which they achieved together through humour, I think, and an obvious sort of trust and love. Um, it's quite refreshing in a story to have an <laughs> uncomplicated mother-daughter well, relationship. I thought that it really... I really wanted it to be refreshing in that way, in the same way that... This is going to sound like such a low cultural reference, but... Um, if anyone's seen the movie Easy A, which is a really great teen film with Emma Stone, the parental relationship in that film, I loved it. The Stanley Tucci character, the dad, you know, this, this lovely kind of balance for then the things that she goes through in her life. And I wanted Jean... Firstly, I knew the story was going to be dark. I wanted her to come from an, a light place um, because she's in the middle and she's trying to work out who she is. And in terms of doing that, there is a love story in this book and it's an unconventional love story. I wanted Jean to be brave in that. And I think the reason that people can be brave in 
endeavouring upon a relationship that society might frown upon um, with some kind of inner confidence really comes from the people who've brought you up. If people bring you up to be who you are and for that's to be okay, I think people are more likely to trust themselves. Um, but it is also an unconventional relationship. Jean's mother is a single mother and Jean's mother was adopted, but her adoptive parents are gorgeous and love her. And I w was similar to Peggy, not knowing what I was doing. I just wrote it, I didn't think about it. But when I reflected upon the first draft, I thought this is nice that there is unconventional family structures that are celebrated and then some of the more conventional family structures in Goodwood are awful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I am in a same-sex relationship myself. I have a daughter. I think it's a really, you know, I'm obviously a devoted parent and so is our daughter's other mother. It saddens me that people think that's not, you know, an okay thing, which a lot of people in society do think and make us feel. Um, I didn't intend Goodwood to have any kind of message, but if, you know, if it does, I guess it's that unconventional families can be okay <laughs> as well. Well, I think that's natural too in when you're writing an adolescent novel. Again, the, coming back to this idea of, you know, coming to terms with what is considered other and kind of getting to terms with that and normalizing it and just saying, you know, these people's lives are their lives and they're doing the things that they're doing. But um, I'll get Alice to respond as well too, because there's a very kind of fascinating parental-child relationship as well in Lorinda, and then I'll open the floor to you, so just to get you ready. Oh, sure. So um, a, a lot of the relationship between the, the parents and my main character, Lucy, in Lorinda is um, it's based on my own experience of my parents. So my parents survived the genocide in Cambodia, and they came to Australia in 1980, and a lot of my growing up was this sense of um, needing to protect my parents because my dad, uh, he actually named me Alice when I was born here, a month after my mum got here. He thought Australia was a wonderland, so he named me Alice in Wonderland. And this new country was just incredible to him. He, he was, you know, the, the political party One Nation and how they're into, um, what do you call it, the, the, what's that word for for loving your country so much. I can't remember what it is, but my dad has it. You know, a lot of new migrants have it so much that they could rival One Nation's sort of sense of... <laughs> sense of... Um, patriotism. Patriotism. My dad is a, a crazy Australian patriot, um, and it's completely genuine because he knows what it's like to live in a country um, where you survive a genocide and all your rights are stripped away. And I remember when I was 16, I went to a private school and my parents, I didn't win a scholarship, my parents just paid money for me to go to this private school. These are my, you know, my mum working in the back shed, my dad with his little watch shop. And so um, these letters would come from the school. There were letters saying, your daughter is not participating in extracurricular activities. You know, to form a well-rounded individual, she should do sports. These are the sports we recommend. And I kept chucking away. And it was a way of protecting my mum and dad because I knew that if I were to take up a sport, it would cost at least maybe $150. You needed to buy six different pieces of separate uniform to your normal sports uniform. You needed to buy things like hockey sticks or, you know, different colored shirt. So I kept throwing these letters away. And one day my mum discovered one and she said, what's this letter on a nice paper? And I said, oh, it's just from the school. And she said, what is it? Why, do you, why is it in the bin? I said, oh, they just want me to play sports. She goes, oh, why don't you play sports then? You know, you, you can take your little sisters and brothers um, to where they're playing sports. And my mum had no clue how seriously schools took their sports. You can't just take along three siblings to, you know, <laughs> Albert Beldy Park. So I never told them about the, the seriousness of sports. Um, and they thought I was having this great experience at the private school, which I was, because I had a really close group of friends. Now, the saddest thing that ever happened at the end of my high school was this valedictory dinner where all the parents and their, they, you know, it's their last um, farewell. So we have this very formal dinner at the Melbourne race course, because it was a posh school. So my, fr my parents sat on this table and they were baffled, they were bewildered that they were on this table with the other ethnic parents, Oslam and her Muslim parents, my friend Jennifer, whose dad owned a Chinese restaurant, my friend Nian, whose parents were also out workers. And you could see the, the eyes in all these parents. And my parents looked at me thinking, 
they'd sent me to this school so that I would make real Australian friends, so I wouldn't, that I'd stop hanging around these gangsters, you know, in my old school. <laughs> and they didn't realise these friends were my support because you would have to completely change your lifestyle to, um, to, to fit into a different group. These were girls who spent $400 on their formal dresses on the other tables, whereas we just, you know, didn't even go to the formal, we went to Ligon Street and had ice cream. So it was a different kind of life. And I could really see the disappointment in my parents' eyes because some um, girls got up on stage to take photographs and these, these were, you know, really um, quite well-off girls. And my parents said, go up there with them and they had no idea about high school dynamics. I said, I've never talked to them all year. Why would I go up there? And my parents said, oh, they're your friends. They really wanted to believe this. And so when the, photo, the role of photos got developed, I did have a few photos with um, one quite attractive girl who was really lovely to me, but she wasn't a close friend. She was just a girl in legal studies. And my parents blew up those photos really big and framed them. And the photos of my best friends she, they, they put them in the back of <laughs> the book because they really wanted this idea that I, I'd had assimilated. Um, and that was sad. That was the same with all my friends' parents. And the reason we hung around each other wasn't because we were forming ghettos like Pauline Hanson said. It was because <laughs> Oslam understood me. Her dad drove taxis. When Jennifer went home, she worked in a Chinese restaurant. We knew we weren't hanging around each other's houses. We had serious work to do. I looked after my younger sisters and brothers. It was a lifestyle I couldn't adapt to. My younger cousins, however, because my aunties um, have, have made it, they've become middle class, they go on France trips, they, they actually have, it's easier for them to assimilate and to adapt because their class situation is completely different to the way mine was. All right, your turn. <laughs> so there's a, a mic, I think, that will be brought around to you. So just put your hand up and we'll bring you the mic and you can ask your question. Right, up here? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, when you're writing and you're writing a child's anger, does that come from your own feeling of anger from a, a, when you were a child that you're writing the anger? Did you understand what I said then? Oh yeah, completely. You're not enlightened as a child. It's just raw anger. You don't analyze things. You don't, you know, it's, it's just a torrent of anger because of a feeling of powerlessness or, or injustice. There's no analysis happening there when you're writing a child's anger. It's completely pure and it's completely, um, sometimes it's completely rational. But you're less likely to judge an angry child in a book than you are an angry man in his 30s or something like that. Yes, it's a very safe um, kind of realm for uh, expressing anger if that's something that you feel <laughs> that you would like to do. And I, 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 I similarly, I um, oh, there's just something so one-dimensional about that adolescent rage that, yeah, uh, definitely I was able to tap into my own... Um, very one-dimensional adolescent rage <laughs> and enjoyed it, a yeah. A bit hormonally charged as yeah. well, perhaps, yeah. Have you ever cried with anger, with the anger that's coming back to you from that time? I'm not really a crier. I do have very tense jaws, though, and during the writing of Hope Farm, my dentist told me I needed to wear a mouth guard at night, so it was <laughs> coming out in other ways. All right, Chloe, ask a question. Ask your question. Right. Raise your hand. Uh, this girl's got the microphone. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go. Okay. Um, how would you write a 16-year-old, um, like, no, 12-year-old girl well? Because I publish my stuff online and there are so many god-awful fanfics starring teenage girls. <laughs> 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 I don't know the answer to the question. I think, so, so you asked, um, how can you do that when you're, you're not actually that age? Is that...
I see. Well, I think, I mean, I think anything to do with writing, any kind of authenticity has to come from channeling something really authentic within yourself. So, I mean, I guess it would be ignoring all of those and then insert the phrase you used about 1D fan something. Um, I can't keep up with the youth language. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's what you have in, that's the power you do have is that you're in it right now. So if you authentically try to, and it's really difficult, if you try to not think too much and you try to lose any feeling of self-consciousness when you are writing, write like you're never going to show it to anyone. Write three pages and never show it to anyone and then write another three and another three and pretend it's just for you. That's when you'll start to feel really authentic and like it's coming from an individual place. And I would just add to that, if you do decide that you want to show somebody that writing and maybe you want to do something with it, choose carefully the first person that you show it to. With all of my writing, the first person I show it to is always someone that I know will be very gentle and kind and will usually just give me encouragement and and then I might go away and work on it more and then the next time I might show it to someone who's a bit tougher who might say, this needs fixing, that's not working. You've got to really, you've got to really protect yourself and I think with writing, it's such a solitary pursuit. You spend so much time on your own. I don't know about you guys, but I reach a point where I'm just to share it with someone because I'm so sick of being the only person in this this world but I have learned from bitter experience that you have to be very careful who that person is because if it's someone who's even means well but is going to give you feedback that's uh, perhaps not not very sensitive or or, or just pay, pays attention to your kind of how vulnerable you are when you share your work, which which everyone is, you know, um, you can really suffer, and it can set you back. I think. Yeah. Going back to to the the themes that are in these books about kind of the public self and the private self, that's really um, in relation to your question. You know, sometimes if you go onto an online forum, you see a lot of persona, you know, a, a, a characters that are created by people of who they are. And playing with that versus who they are under the surface is a pretty interesting territory for a writer. So even as you're recoiling from what, you know, what you're reading about 1D fans or whatever, that recoiling is in and of itself interesting for you to play with as a writer. You know, who are they really? And, and who are they constructing themselves as? Hi, sorry, down the back. <laughs> um, I was wondering, uh, when you guys are writing and you're obviously drawing on your own experiences to a certain extent, uh, and you want it to be uh, raw and real, uh, but I wondered whether there's a battle uh, as a writer to balance being raw in your own experiences and having that uh, filter through in your writing and, uh, and not wanting to do a disservice to your own relationships and, uh, and wanting to represent them accurately but not throw people under the bus, <laughs> if that makes sense. Are you talking about writing about people based on real people in life and not wanting to hurt them? Well, I've, I've written um, a few books that are non-fiction, mostly about my family and people I know, um, and it just proves that my family love me unconditionally. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you a great story about um, a writer friend of mine named Peter Goldsworthy, uh, who, who's also a doctor, but he, he's, um, he wrote a lot of novels and he, he said, he said, look, every time someone pisses me off, I put them in a novel and it releases it, it feels so good. And then one day he said he was on a book signing table and he wrote about this really horrible guy. He disguised, you know, the, the guy's hair colour and everything, but he said that the, the assholey traits were still there. And then he saw the guy at the back of the signing line just waving at him and he's starting to panic and the line gets shorter and shorter because he's signing books and then the guy slaps a book in front of him and says Peter can you sign this and Peter's like grinning sheepishly and signing his name and saying so did, have you read it mate the guy goes yeah yeah I loved it 
<laughs> uh, and Peter said, what, what did you think of the characters? And he goes, oh, yeah, the characters were great, but there's a real asshole in there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I guess the moral is, and Peter told me this before I wrote my books, he, he said, people don't recognise themselves if they're really bad, and if you disguise them well enough, they don't, because no one thinks that they're an asshole. They, they think they're pretty good. <laughs> so sometimes you're quite safe. <laughs> it's true. Each of you has another job than being a novelist. And I have two, a two-part question. One, how do you balance that time of that other job with your writing? And then once a book is published, how does that affect that other job that you have? The people who read it, how do they react to you? Um, well, for me, um, I'm also a musician. I very much had to separate from music in order to write a novel. And I was ready to do that. I was a bit sick of music, to be honest. And I was interested in other forms of writing. I've always been interested in prose and I've always been interested in fiction. I didn't think I had the discipline for it because songwriting is a very short form and enables a lot of procrastination and just going to the park and humming. Um, <laughs> And I think when I realised that I was ready to sit down and write a novel, it started with just a series of small sketches that were about the length of a song. And then I realised, of course, that I needed to do something more if I was going to complete a book. So for me, it required putting music aside entirely the entire time. And I've never focused on anything in my life as much as I focused on writing Goodwood. And that was a nice surprise to know that I could do that. Um, as soon as I finished the book as a reaction, like Peggy said, I immediately went to the studio and made a new album, which just came out about a month ago. Um, and for me, I think it will be from now on, now that I've finished the album, I'm desperate to write another book and I'm about to start that. Um, so for me, it is switching very wholeheartedly between one and the other. I don't know how you do it in any other way. Let's hear. <laughs> um, I'm also a musician, but for me, music just kind of, because I play in a band, the band, oh, people just, people keep having babies in the band and <laughs> sets of twins and things like that. So it, it, it's kind of, I'm not the main person in the band, so I'm just the bass player. So that's kind of quietly folded itself away for what has suddenly turned into 10 years. We have just recorded another album, but it was very much a Monday nights album. We would all get together on a Monday night, and so we, it took us two years to record it. Uh, and so that that has confined itself. So I haven't had to do that. Um, but the main, my main, I feel like my main job is actually uh, being a mother. Um, so I've got three children. One's just started high school. The other two are in primary school. And I know that means that they're out of the house every day or every, you know, school day from between 9 and um, 3.30, but that time just seems to, <laughs> I don't know. The, the responsibility, it, it just feels like it, it, there's a lot in, be, in just running a household and being a parent. Uh, and actually it's where that and my writing and then my partner's career all converge where we just feel like we're constantly negotiating and trying very hard to be our best selves and communicate well and encourage one another in their careers and not not be resentful or uh, do any point scoring <laughs> or you know keep little books so we go right well you went and did that event and so you owe me this but um Annabelle so Crabb would say that you needed a wife Annabelle Crabb would say that you needed a wife. <laughs> we do. We need a wife. Yeah, Come and see me afterwards <laughs> if you would like to <laughs> be my, the wife of my partner and I. Um, so, so I'm not a musician. I actually do a job um, that's quite <laughs> boring by comparison, but in which I've been for 10 years. I work at the Fair Work Commission. Um, I do the research that goes into minimum wage decisions, particularly for people with disabilities, juniors, trainees and um, apprentices. And I find it's a great balance because 
to be honest, you can get really egocentric as a writer and it could get worse the more successful you become. So, um, and it's true, I, you know, if, if I was to write full time, I'd lose perspective because, I've, you know, even going on short residencies, it, you get very insular um, and you're just in your writing world and then you worry if I was a full-time writer what the reviews will say because the reviews would affect your book sales which would affect your livelihood if you've got a family to support. So the fact I have this other job keeps me in balance and it keeps me not thinking about myself um, all the time, you know, <laughs> about my ego, so that when I have those few hours to write, all I'm doing is writing. I'm not being anxious. I'm not thinking about what people will think of this book or whether it will win anything. And I think that's a wonderful balance that I've achieved over the years. It's, it gets a bit hard when a book comes out, as you know, because of the publicity. Um, you, you've got to talk about it on radio sometimes. You've got to travel for it. But my workplace is um, always... I, I was working there before I was a writer, and I'm still a writer, so they've always been quite adaptable to that. Yeah, that works out well. So it's, it's 11, and I've been given the time, so we might end it there. Um, but thank you so much for coming. And just a reminder before you leave. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.